our government, our parents, our bank managers all want us to be financially literate, to understand how the world of economics works, how money works. And this is very much a psychological issue, much more an economical issue. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I am delighted and I am pleased you are here for another fascinating episode. For all the returning listeners, welcome back. And for the new listeners, welcome. I hope you enjoy today's episode where we dive into the fascinating world of the psychology of money. I'm your host, Sean Maslick, and I'm thrilled to have our guest today, Adrian Farham is a chartered occupational psychologist, chartered health psychologist, an international lecturer. He has not one, not two, but three, yes, three PhDs. He's an accomplished author with an impressive 96 books published. Yes, you heard me correctly. Three PhDs and 96 published books. My mind can barely comprehend this. Adrian's extensive expertise in the field of psychology and for our conversation, the psychology of money makes him a perfect guest as we dive into the depths of the psychology of money. His book titled The Psychology of Money was first released in 1998. In this conversation, we explore the intricacies of our attitudes and beliefs about money. Adrian shares the essential principles that we need to know when it comes to the psychology of money. Principles that really can change many different facets of our lives. And as you'll hear him talk about happiness, diving into and embracing these guiding principles can help us find more moments of happiness in our lives. And together we talk about why psychologists for the most part have avoided money. But recently, we've seen more and more psychologists researching and studying money, which is fantastic as we explore this field more and more. As Adrian speaks, you'll see his depth of knowledge. I was delighted to have him on the podcast, and I highly recommend his book, The Psychology of Money. Yes, that's one book I'm recommending of all 96. Again, my mind just can't even comprehend the fact that he's published 96 books. Very, very impressive. Before we get to the show, if you have been enjoying the podcast, I would love it if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Also, if you want to get your own money song, a custom song based on your money story, head over to www.financialanthem.com and check out the online program and we'd love for you to participate. We're doing 100 of these financial anthems And it is such a joy to experience the program with all the participants who've already participated. Head over to www.financialanthem.com to see more details. 
And now I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Adrian Fernham. Adrian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I am quite excited to speak with you. A little background on you is something that just captivated me as I was researching for today. And I was in awe that you don't have just one PhD. You didn't write just Mm. one book, but 96 books and you have three PhDs or three doctorates. My curiosity has been sparked. So... I thought we'd open up with this. As a psychologist, that's you, who has achieved such remarkable feats in the books and the education and teaching you've done, I'm curious to know, what what is your driving factor to continue to be such a prolific writer and learner and so forth? I'm sure you know the inside scoop, having all, all this knowledge around psychology. Two or three answers to this. One is, I grew up in Africa. My mother was a missionary. I grew up with a what used to be called colonial cringe. And the idea was that you were somehow a second rater because you were a colonial and that you had to prove yourself to the old mother country. So that was one of my driving factors. The second one was my mother was a, as I said, a medical missionary. Nurses like to marry doctors, but she married my father and wasn't a doctor. So the next best thing was to convert her son into being a doctor. She was very keen that I became a medical doctor. And I spent some of my summer holidays in her hospital and really didn't enjoy it. And I I sensed the fact that she was disappointed in me. So I got a doctorate to prove I was a doctor, but she said it wasn't a real doctor. So I got another doctor to prove I was a doctor. So I got three doctors to impress my mother. Um, that's they're the counts for the doctorates. And they, the book writing, it, you know, it's, as an academic, it's one of our KPIs or KRAs. This is how you measure, not particularly well, but it comes easily to me. I enjoy it. I enjoy writing. I, this morning, I get up every morning at 4.30 or 5 o'clock and I write for about four or five hours. So every, every day I do a thousand or two thousand words. I've done this for many, many years. It comes easily to me and I enjoy it. And so, you know, if you discover what you're good at and like doing, this is the, the magic of, of so much vocational guidance that I, I, it comes easily to me. I enjoy doing it. People seem to like it. And so I keep doing it, you know, and you've got a hundred books, you've got 110 and so on. It's sort of, it's showing off. My wife says, you know, don't do this. It's a form of, you know, narcissistic showing off. But there you go. I, I like writing books. I spent two hours this morning on three different books. We'll continue to do this until the clock stops. So interesting. And so your wife says it's narcissistic. But you say, and I wrote this down here, is that you've discovered what you like. When is there a difference between the two? of doing something that fulfills you versus, and maybe this isn't just for you, this is for all of us, because... I mean, there's two things. It's it's what you like and what you're good at. And I think I discovered early on that, you know, I think I'm a bit of a show. I like 
a, I'm a university professor who likes giving lectures. Mm -hmm. Now, there are not many university professors who like giving lectures. They try and avoid giving lectures. They don't like lecturing. I do like lecturing. I do like to be. Yesterday, I was in, in Glasgow. I'm going to Norway next week and, and Italy the week after. And I enjoy standing up in front of large groups of people and trying to persuade and charm them into a way of thinking. And, you know, for some people, public speaking is a horrendous and terrifying activity. For me, it's fun. You know, I enjoy doing it. I look forward to getting on stage. And I've explored or exploited this, call it a talent or call it an ability. I don't know. I think I'm quite good at it. And, you know, the, the real secret for young people is finding out what you like doing and what you're good at. And if you like doing what you're good at, which is nearly always the same thing, and people respond and pay you for it, well, that's the secret of happiness. That's the secret of vocational guidance. Mm. Find out what you like doing, find out what you're good at, and see if people want to pay you to do it. Yeah. This idea of vocational guidance, I think that's a really important idea. And especially when we get into your book and just your overall learnings around the psychology of money, I can assume that the exploration towards what is our own vocational guidance, what is that thing that we enjoy doing, other people enjoy it, it gets a little difficult maybe to find when we put in this thing called money that has its own meaning or that we attach to it. So I'm curious, at what point did you start to become interested in money, the elusive power that it has, the meaning that we attach to money? Yeah, there are two answers to this. One is I had a PhD supervisor when I was doing my doctorate in Oxford. I had a very interesting and clever and kind man, and those are very important words. And he used to keep a secret list of topics that psychologists didn't write about. He was the first person to write, or one of the first person to write about the psychology of happiness. Because all psychologists write about unhappiness and depression and suicide and stuff. And he said, no one's written about money. And I remember this conversation very well. It was when I was very early on in my degree. And so, so that's one factor. And the second one is, I had parents who didn't have much money. They were as I said, my, mush, my mother was a missionary. And so I grew up with people who were very cautious and careful about money. And money was a rather taboo sort of topic. And, you know, we didn't discuss money. Even when my, my, my mother was very old and I was very worried about her, she wouldn't discuss money. She wouldn't discuss how much she had, whether she had enough. And I kept putting money in her bank account and so forth. And I thought, this is it's abnormal because my mother was a very progressive sort of person. And we had, I can remember at the age of, you know, 17, 18, we did birds and bees conversation. We talked about sex. She could talk about sex and how to make babies, but money was very difficult. So it's never been the case for me. So these two factors, first of all, my PhD supervisor who said, this is a neglected topic in psychology, which indeed it is. And on the second, my personal experience of having a mother who found the whole topic taboo. This combination led me to become interested in this topic. Super interesting on how, when we look back, 
we can often reflect and put all the dots together to make sense of where we're arriving. As I was preparing for today, I read about a role model of yours. And was this the supervisor named Michael Argyle? Argyle, yes, that's right. Okay. He was the one I wrote. I wrote The Psychology of Money with him together in, gosh, 19, I can't remember the year. 1998. He was my PhD super, a lovely, charming, warm, clever, and interesting man. I can't speak more highly of him. Well, he, he has left a lasting impression if you're still talking about him and you really made sure you highlighted that word kind. I really want to get into the book and the concepts within the book, which is probably poor mm. beyond the book itself. But one thing that I did hear is that, or what I came across prepping for today, and I think it goes in alignment with what we're talking about, but you call yourself an unhealthy saver. And as you talk about your your mother's relationship with money and perhaps this taboo conversation, maybe just speak to what is an unhealthy saver according to Adrian? And what, if any, link did that have from that taboo subject? Yes, yes. I, you know, I say to people, people are getting married or have got a close relationship. And I say, are you a spender or are you a saver? You know, people say well, a bit of both. I say, yeah, a bit of both. But are you predominantly one or the other? And they will always come down on one side or the other. And I say, well, have you ever had a close relationship with somebody who's on the other side? If you're a spender, have you had a relationship with a saver? And I tell you this, it is one of the most hot topics that can be. People are, we can talk about sex, we can talk about all sorts of things, but attitudes to money and and ways of using money is a very hot topic. My wife and I are exactly on the same page. It's many reasons why we're very happy, but one of the reasons are we're both on the same page. We're both savers, intuitively savers. I think it's because we come from a relatively poor background. I was a foreign student in England. I had no money. I had to work. You know, it's not a sad story at all. I I don't think it was a sad story, but we both came from backgrounds where we didn't have any money. Now, the question is, there is savers and careful with money and super cautious. So let me give you a story about today. I live here in central London. It's a beautiful day. I went for a walk. My wife gave me a list of things I had to buy. And I went and bought some bananas. And so the bananas are quite cheap in London, surprisingly. But there are various places you can buy bananas. And I went to the cheapest place to buy the bananas. Now, I can afford very expensive bananas. I have, I've got a bit of money. But always in the back of my mind, I've got this, I've got to save, I've got to do a good deal. I can't waste money. What do they used to say? Look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves. I am an irrational, cautious spender. My wife said, I've got a back problem and I injured my back. And you know, the question is, she said, well, we've got to have medical treatment. And I said, yes, but it's going to be very costly. She said, well, we've got a lot of money. And I said, yeah, we've got a lot of money, but can we spend it? So the answer is, it's not rational. I'm not rational with, I, I'm rationalizing I know this. I know I am overcautious with my money. It's very difficult to change this. It's very difficult to. I saw it in my mother as well. You know, I like a bargain. I chase a bargain. So I am security oriented with my money. And my research, my you know, some of my early work has been on 
factors associate, what do you associate money with? Power, love, freedom. I associate it with security. I've got money in the bank. I'm safe. They can't do anything to me. I can, I can get what I want through the money. But there's, there's being over anxious about it. Whereas, you know, there, there comes a time you, you should spend money on certain things. And I have difficulty with that. It's not rational. I know the rationality of it. It's just that I don't follow the rules. So many different valuable insights there. I'm, I'm trying to decipher which, which door to go down. And I want to touch on two things that you talked about. And one is the, the underlying feelings. In your case, it was security around money. And then I also want to discuss after that or before how these feelings, attitudes, meanings to money are developed in us and what we can do. Because it's very clear for you, you're aware of that feeling that you say isn't rational. And you can speak to that, which I think there's some power in itself. But before we go there, for listeners, I think it's important that we differentiate the difference between, uh, first off, why has the psychology of money for so long been avoided from psychologists? And then maybe can you just touch on the difference between what a psychologist looks like or looks at with money and an economist? And I say that because you talked about this mm. rational and I know it's ra not rational. And I feel like sometimes people get those two confused. So maybe first we can talk about is why have we always avoided money that's studying it from a psychological perspective? Yes and no. I mean, I think if you look back, because it's part of the book, I look back on the psychology of money. I mean, one of Freud's associates called Fenichel was very interested in, in money. I was reading a paper two days ago about the problems therapists have in talking about money and increasing their fees to their patients. So there is a psychology of money and it's, sorry, a clinical psychology, a psychoanalytic psychologist where money is associated with childhood socialization, it's associated with anal fixation and so forth. So in the 20s, the psychologists were interested in the symbolic nature of money and to what extent you know, money is associated with dirt. You're about stinking rich, filthy rich, uh, making a pile and so forth. So there's always been the clinical psychology of money. There's also been the cognitive psychology of money. I mean, when you go to America, what surprises most people is America's currency, the dollar, is still a note. It's a rather dirty note. I know money's gone out of fashion, but why isn't there a coin in America? Why are all American notes all the same color and the same size? American currency is irrational in many ways. And, you know, one has been involved in some countries, Australia, England, about the redesign of currency. And this cognitive psychologist is very interested in this, in the extent to which people are so attached to the almighty dollar, the, the picture and so forth. So that's psychological. There's also the developmental psychology. Now, I've been very interested in what Americans call allowances, and we call pocket money. So parents are very interested in how you socialize your children. You want your children, I want my child, to be good with money, to be sensible, to be you know understanding, financially literate. So you put in place a range of socialization practices. You give them allowances and there are conditions associated with those allowances. This is 
the psychology of money. There's a lot of, I've been very interested in this topic and allowances. There's a number of books written by, a wonderful book written by an American called Money Doesn't Grow on Trees. And there are books on teaching your children about money. You know, if children know how to make babies by the age of about 12, they don't understand about tax until they're 18 or 19. So the psychologists are very interested in the education of children, when they understand the concept of profit, when they understand the concept of ownership and so forth. So I've talked about the clinical psychology, the cognitive psychology, the developmental psychology. There's also the differential or personality psychology of money, which I mentioned very briefly. And this is the issue of individual differences of why I am a spender and you are a saver, why I see money in a particular way. But I think to answer your question, if you read textbooks and you turn to the appendix, there's nothing about money. Money is sort of forgotten. It's fallen through the cracks in psychology, but the economists deal with money. Psychologists, not really. But there are ways in which, you know, the beliefs about attitudes towards spending of money is absolutely fundamental to the whole psychological enterprise. And my book with Argyle, I think, in the last century, I've written a couple of books subsequently and papers. And now it's become much more relevant, you know, particularly this issue of financial literacy, you know, People, our government, our parents, our bank managers all want us to be financially literate, to understand how the world of economics works, how money works. And this is very much a psychological issue, much more than an economical issue. So I think, and thanks to the fact, it's a long answer to a simple question, but the Nobel Prize for Economics has been run three times by psychologists, Thaler and Kahneman and before that. And you know, we've got into bed with the economists because the economists recognize at long last that economic issues about the head and the heart. It's about rationality and it's about emotion. And we know that they are related one to another. And that financial decision-making is a function of the two. And that people make financial monetary decisions not based on the logic. They know the logic. They're clever, intellectual, educated people. But there are psychological factors which determine those decisions. And that's where the psychology comes in. And that's why there's been a resurgence of interest in psychology with regard to economics and monetary behaviors. Thank you for explaining that. So you talked about at the end there, there's been a resurgence. And... Earlier, you were mentioning that money maybe has fallen through the cracks. What does this resurgent look like in terms of talking more about the psychological factors around money? And have you seen a dramatic shift? Not well, have you seen a shift in our way of being with money? Well, that's a good question. And the answer is no, not particularly. I think, you know, there's a great interest in psychological research. So, I read all the papers and I was reading one an hour before we, we went online. So there's a great deal of psychological interest in this. Do I detect this in the real world? Do I think that people are 
different or people have learned some sort of lessons about money? I think, I think the answer is no. I, I don't think there is a increase, necessary increased sophistication of the average person. There are psychologists very interested in trying to help people with their financial distress and financial situations. And they call themselves financial psychologists. And what they will try and do is they will try and understand what sort of characteristics you have. So they might say, we will classify, we'll give you some sort of questionnaire, and you will see if you are a money avoider or a status-oriented person or vision. So we try and diagnose your attitudes towards money. And then we will try and help you if this is causing a problem. And I think that has grown. But I don't think in general, looking overall, that there appears to be a great deal more psychological interest in money or What I do think, let me me be a little more coherent about this, I think people who work in finance and financial advice have become much more aware of psychological insights. In the past, they would ask you about to what extent your risk appetite, that was the only question, your risk appetite, and that will determine how you use and plan for your money. They have become, I think, much more sophisticated about how people think about their money, how they are irrational about their money. And I think in that sense, the financial world has become better at trying to understand the beliefs and behaviors of ordinary people. And in that sense, it's a very good thing. So there's been a marriage of economics, finance, and psychology. And the psychologists have helped the economists and the financial people to think about how ordinary individuals use, think about, store their money. I think you're, I don't think, but like when you talked about earlier about your your words for your irrational saving and buying the inexpensive bananas, how you said that that was around security. I feel like that's a good example of this marriage between all the disciplines where now we have awareness and verbiage that can articulate why you're doing that and why it actually makes sense for you. Within your work and in your book, I heard you or I read that you talked about these three common themes that people dream that money could fulfill. Uh, Not three, just there's these common themes. And one of them was security, freedom. You also talked about showing off success. So how does one get to that place that they can start to identify that, ah, that's an underlined feeling of lack of security and this money gives me that security. It's actually security I'm after. I did one study on, on money grams. And this is an idea that you get beliefs about money from your parents. They are like telegrams from the past. And you know, if you speak to people about their allowance technique and what they, would their parents talk about money? Would they, was money a taboo topic? Did they, did they have fights about money? Because, you know, children pick up these things. You know, when you went shopping with your mother, was it different from shopping with your father? Did people show off about the ostentatiousness of gifts and so forth? And I think 
you know, a lot of our money-related behaviors come from those early experiences. You know, a message I, I remember very well, my parents didn't have any money. They were, as I said, missionaries and migrants. So I've grown up with a, a mentality of I've not got any money. Now, my wife keeps saying, we've got lots of money. And, you know, lots of money is a relative variable. But in my mind, I'm still a poor person. I arrived in England as a foreign student. I didn't have any money. I had to do all sorts of jobs to get money. And I don't regret any moment of this. But my philosophy of money, I can't change. It's very difficult for me to be a ostentatious spender. It seems unnatural. It seems uncomfortable. Now, the paradox is, of course, I know about this stuff. I know about the irrationality of this, and I should spend more money and, and, and enjoy myself. But it's very difficult to get over those sort of hurdles. Am I abnormal in this regard? I don't know. I mean, I've seen lots of people whose spending and saving habits shock me profoundly. Because it's not sort of rational in the, in the way economists assume. The economists assume that you have this income and you, 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 you have these outgoings and you, you make, if you read Keynes on, on saving, it's extraordinary when you read an economist on saving, on, on why people save, and then talk to people on why they save. There's no connection whatsoever. The economists have a theory about rational man. Homo economicus is a rational individual who plans and plots, you know, money for the future and so forth. It's patently obvious when you speak to individuals that they're not rational. They're not irrational, but they are, they are, well, they're not irrational, they're irrational. The emotions, the associations play such an important role. And, you know, I I don't know whether I'm unusual in this. I, I don't think of myself as being strange about money. I don't think of myself as particularly mean, but I recognize that how I use and accumulate and spend my money might not be how economists would recommend I do it, not how rational people would say, well, I think the best thing to do is to spend this and save that. And it doesn't come naturally to me. It's confession time. I appreciate the confession time because I feel like you doing that is normalizing that we all have our own version of confession time when it comes to money in comparison to these quote-unquote rational models that have been developed on a piece of paper. And to your point that we we are humans with a lot of different emotional factors that drive our decisions and behaviors. And when you talk about your saving and the security it creates, I feel like Money does the same thing to me. In addition, I was a shy kid growing up and money started giving me the sense of power and control as a shy kid. You don't use your voice. You want to use your voice. When I started making money, people were like, oh, good job, Sean. That's awesome. Like, look what you're doing. I was like, whoa, this feels good. And so it really gave me that control and power and security. And through doing some reflection, I started to recognize similar to you that it's these feelings of control and power and security I was really looking for and not money. So my question is, how do we dance with that? And and what I mean with that is that all of us have these underlying factors that were created in childhood to some degree. 
I hear you saying that, you know, maybe you can't change the fact that you're a saver, but just that recognition, I assume, provides you with some, you know, answers why you're not following the rational models. Is this, I guess, is this a dance? Is this something that we don't ever get rid of? Rather, it's more of an awareness around and we're accepting it? It relates to the fundamental question about whether people change much, change much over time, and how you would do financial therapy. There's a journal called the Journal of Financial Therapy, and there are books written about financial therapy. I remember reading some incredible case studies of people who were, you know, Howard Hughes, extraordinarily obsessionally mean. There are other famous cases of people who spend their money in, in amazingly irrational ways. And there is, you know, an issue about the extent to which money represents something. It is the mechanism by which you express some psychological factors, power over others. And I think it, it can be, it's completely fascinating. The, the case studies of people with the use of their money is, is very interesting. The issue is about ordinary people like you and I, and thinking about to what extent we can become more sensible with our money, you know, the accumulation, the saving, the, the use of money. And I would you know, encourage people to do this, to think about you know, what sort of individual they are. Is money representative of security or love or, or power or freedom? To what extent do you see the ways in which money represents something, and that's how you spend it. And whether that's causing you problems. Now, you know, for me, I don't think I have particular money issues. I would say the same. My question is whether my friends and my wife say this. I don't think I have particular money problems and the accumulation of money. But there are many people who do. And what you notice is in relationships, you know, it's fascinating to ask people, husbands and wives, do you have separate accounts? Do you have a shared bank account or do you have separate accounts? Do you have separate credit cards? How many and so forth? Are you comfortable with your partner reading your spending and so forth? And suddenly it reveals a huge amount about that relationship. It's very surprising where you you think your relationship is perfectly natural, that everybody does it as you do it. And then you discover close friends of yours, you know, in a very similar background, and they have completely different attitudes to accounts, to how they spend their money, how sort of semi-secretive they are with their money. And that suddenly reveals the power of all this stuff and the secretiveness and the, the sharing. And that's why I think, you know, the clinical psychologists and the counseling psychologists and the financial therapists have got really into this area because of the way in which otherwise clever, rational, logical people behave what one might call strangely with regard to their money. And it's where they disagree. It's where they have issues of this what was semi-unconscious behavior is not in agreement with the other person as I, you know to, to choose the example of spenders and savers if you've had a relationship with somebody 
who is not like you, if you're a spender and they're a saver, and you're relatively extreme, it can cause substantial problems. I had a, a friend who was a divorce lawyer, and she said, you know, one of the issues that comes up in divorce frequently is matters of money. She said, but as much as the cause as the consequence, in other words, the way in which you think about and use money is part of the reason for the divorce, not only how money is sold in divorce. Because I think it's a taboo topic. I often say to, to young people, have you, have you talked about this? You know, when one talks about a lot of things in, in early stages of relationship, but have you talked about your hopes for money, how you save it, what do you want to spend it on, so forth? And still, still, you know, in the 21st century, it remains a taboo topic, which is why the psychologists are so interested in this. When you say it can reveal a lot about a relationship, I think it's so fascinating how when we get into a coupleship of whatever form and say you have a spender and saver that you keep talking about, for the most part, I feel like for many of us, we're so unconscious to the level that the reason why we are a spender or saver and almost believe that same principle that the economists hold, that this is the way Spending is the way. The way I'm doing it is the way, which really makes sense when you think about whatever they learn from childhood socialization, the beliefs, the fears, the whatever the meaning they've attached to money. And I think when you add those two together, they're both unconscious of their own meaning or stories around money. Then you put them together. I don't know. John Gottman always talks about how he could tell if people are going to separate at like 97% accuracy after 15 minutes of talking. I feel like this would be that's right. This would be a surefire way. <laughs> they were the, the eight questions. I remember this very well. I think it's not one of them, but I I say to people, you know, talk about talk about money, talk about fantasy. What would you do with, you know, I, today this very day I was with a, a young person, one of my ex students, and I was talking about how much money she was making. She's very successful, very talented, and I say, well, what do you want the money for? Don't work out how much money you can make. Work out what you want to do with the money. You want to buy a, a nice house. You want to have nice holidays. Cost that. Work backwards from what you want to how much it costs, from rather how much you can make and what you want to do with it. And there's a sort of fantasy with some people that, particularly, that money will reveal, you know, happiness. This is a, a very old conversation which goes back to biblical times about money and happiness. And of course, we know from what's called the Easterlin hypothesis, from the work of it, it started in 1974, based on American data, that as Americans have got richer, and it's true of everybody, not only Americans, but as people have got richer over time, but their happiness hasn't increased. So how much money do you need to maximize your happiness? And it's a question that, in fact, I asked yesterday. I was lecturing in Scotland yesterday on related topics. And I say to people, how much do you think you need, and there's data on this, to maximize your happiness? So it's an annual income in your currency. How much do you need to maximize your happiness? In other words, after that, it doesn't make any difference. And I've asked this of many people. So you ask this of bankers and so forth. And it's, it, they puzzle over the question for a moment. So it's an annual income above which this is enough. 
And the answer is about twice the national average. So in Britain, this will be about 70,000, 80,000. In America, Canada, about $90,000 a year. After that, it doesn't have any effect on happiness. Now, of course, as soon as you say this, people become passionately outraged <laughs> by the preposterousness of this. And you say, well, actually, there's data on this. You know, people have done that. You know, what do you need the money for? And what is the relationship between money and happiness? And this gets on to the organizational psychology. This is my particular passion. And it's about money and job satisfaction, money and happiness. And there's a number of factors here. You know, does money motivate people? This is the most fundamental question that people ask always. Is, is money a motivator? And I say, well, the psychologist has been very clear about this for, for about 50 years. It goes back to Hertzberg. The answer is pay people market forces, pay them what the market forces are, pay them slightly above that. But beyond that, beyond that, you don't get any, what Americans would say, bang for your buck. You don't get any extra motivation. And there are four reasons for this. The first is money. If I gave you an increase, imagine anyone who is listening, you've got a 10% increase in your salary today. You think, well, thank you very much. Delighted. Very good. The question is, how long does this last? So if I give you an increase in salary, 10%, 20%, 50%, I could double your salary. Wonderful. How long does the effect last? And the answer is the effect wears off. It wears off quite quickly, surprisingly quickly. Therefore, if you want to use money to motivate people, you're going to need a lot of it because it's like a drug. It wears off. But the second factor is most important, and that is what is, I say to people, what single factor predicts satisfaction with your pay? Many, many factors determine your satisfaction with your, your pay. And the answer is the most important factor is comparative data. In other words, not what you get paid, but what the people get paid around you. And this is why in organizations, they often are deeply hypocritical. So they say, we want to be opaque and op not opaque. We want to be open and transparent. And the question is, will you allow everybody to know each other's salary? I'm a professor in Norway. And one of the extraordinary things, I'm going there tomorrow, one of the extraordinary things about Norway is you can know everybody's salary. So I, Sean, could look up your salary and you could look up mine. I could look up your tax returns. And this is very, very shocking. And you say to organizations, what's the best strategy? Should you have total secrecy or total openness? What about somewhere in between? What about what are called narrow bands between 50 and 60, or wide bands. And of course, what people come up with is they come up with, we don't want openness. We don't want everybody to know what each other are being paid because you can't justify it. You know, why should you be paid 10, 20,000 more than I am? You've been here longer and they can't justify it. So there is this amazing issue with money in the workplace. And it's about the extent to which people are transparent. Very, very, very few companies 
do this. I work for one. It has to remain anonymous. We are sackable on the spot. So if you tell me your salary and I tell you mine, that is a reason for sacking. Because they're so sensitive to this issue of equity, not how much I'm getting paid, but how much I'm getting paid relative to other people. And that's a very important issue. It's different between equality and equity and the sensitivity to money. You know, people will quit organizations, not on the basis of how much they're paid, but how much they're paid relative to somebody who they judge not to be as good as them. And it's a very, very hot issue in finance. We've known a long time that the relationship between how much people are paid and how job satisfied they are is very weak. And how much they are paid and how much they are satisfied with their pay is very weak. And this illustrates, I think, some of the fundamental points about money. It's, it's not how much, but how much relatively. But you have this idea of I give and I get. There's inputs and outputs. And I have a theory about how much you give and you get. And this can be, can be rational and reasonable or not. And you see, I've been in an organization at the university where suddenly these things were made apparent. And within four or five days, five people had resigned out of extraordinary anger because they had assumed that there was, in their view, some sort of fairness and equity. And there wasn't. We all know what, how much work we do, but it was secret how much money we got. And once it became more apparent, you thought, my God, this is desperately unfair. And the anger and the fury and the frustration, I've never seen anything like it. Money in the workplace, it's not how much, it's how much relatively. And that's a terribly important point for people to bear in mind. A Canadian psychologist, Elizabeth Dunn, she's done a fair bit of research around money and happiness. And she talks about this comparable, like compared salaries and there's a happier boost if you get an increase in salary above someone you know versus if you actually just yes. got more money. And it it makes me just so in, or curious about your experience in Norway where salaries are disclosed. So while this is not a, a one-factor question, there's a lot of complexities, but how have you experienced the conversations around money being taboo or not in Norway with this idea that it's transparent. I mean, I have young kids and I know if I absolutely put zero tolerance to any swear word, I just gave that sort of swear word more power and they might be saying it as soon as I turn around. And I could see that's happening with money. It's like, we make it a secret thing. Don't ever talk about it. But now we give it this, this tremendous amount of power. So have you noticed any different societal narratives around talking about money in Norway? Well, one, one of the things about Norway is the lack of differential between people. What is surprising is you know, a brain surgeon and a, an operative in McDonald's. In places like North America, there's huge differences, whereas in Norway, there aren't. In other words, the, the differentiation between individuals is much lower. When, when you know, you know, can you justify why does the head of marketing and the head of HR get paid so much more than somebody else. Can you justify that? And the answer is you probably can't. 
Do they get paid more because they've been there a long time and they've got more? Some organize it. Like in, in sales, you can justify differences very clearly because you can measure the outputs, you know, how much revenue I've generated, how many calls and so on. It's all, it's all logged. But in some jobs, you can't. I mean, why should an assistant professor be paid more than an associate professor be paid more than a professor? What do they do differently? What, you know, the, one of them's been there a long time and done stuff. And if you can't justify it, those differences so clear. In Norway, the, it, it's much less the case because you can look up your colleagues and they can look you up and you can see the differentials. Now, if the differentials aren't very large, then people don't get very, very upset. What's fascinating, a law came in place where you can now look up who looks you up. <laughs> so imagine, you know, I don't know what you earn, you don't want I earn, but imagine we were in Norway. I could look you up and say, my goodness, he's a rich man. Look how much he's earning. But now you can look up the fact that I looked you up. It's sort of prurient. It's about sharing the, the, the knowledge. Why I think this is important is in most Western societies, we're deeply hypocritical about money. We, you know, we say, we believe in transparency, we believe in openness. I say, okay, if we believe in openness, let's find out who's, you know, what people are getting paid. In Great Britain, one of the openness is the prime minister's salary. And this has become an amazing totem. People say, well, you're being paid twice as much as the prime minister. You know, is, this, is your job twice as important, twice as consequential for that salary. So in the world of, of work, you know, there's, of course, there's how much you're paid. There's also shares and there's also, you know, pensions and all sorts of other things. But it is the hottest of all topics. And it's one which, you know, we still find difficult. People who, who claim to be open and honest about these sort of issues still find difficulty in open conversations about how much people are paid and with how that pay is determined. It's determined by your progress, by your potential, by your, by your contributions to the organization. It's not at all clear. And suddenly you get, I think, deep hypocrisy in the, in the business world about you know, openness and transparency on the one hand and secrecy on the other because it's very difficult to justify how much people are paid. Why should somebody be paid more than another person? Why should their pension, where should their contribution <coughs> be so different? And that, and then suddenly the whole issue of money really explodes. It's, it's in the workplace much more than the therapy that this issue becomes important. So interesting. You talked about money and happiness, and this conversation is making me think of Aristotle, how he said something to the degree of happiness is the meaning and purpose of life. Like kind of in the end, that's what life was about. But yet we can hear through these organization comparisons, evaluating if I'm worth more, why are they worth more to everything that you've been saying is that we start to then, I feel like, play on these maybe insecurities that we have around money. It's like, hey, wait, we start to get really emotional around it, which of course, because we're emotional creatures. But do you think if you could 
with all your knowledge and expertise in around happiness and money and the psychological factors of human, while there's no quick fix to this at all, but do you think this model around transparency, if you could take out the corporations that say one thing and do the other, but do you think if we move towards a more transparent, equitable model around money where there isn't so many gaps in wages similar to Norway, do you think this could help alleviate some of these discomforts we have around money? Or is this just always going to be a thing, these discomforts that we have around money? I would like to think that, you know, we're clever and rational and logical sort of people and we can have these debates. My experience is no, that it's so hot. It's such a hot topic. I was with an organization the other day and they asked me about this topic, about, about secrecy, about, you know, keeping it secret. And they asked me my advice. And there's a lot of pressure in this organization to be transparent. We should know what people are being paid and why they're being paid. And I said, you know, I think the honest answer is unless you are very clear about why and how people, you know, what is the rationale for the pay? What, you know, can you, can you develop a, a, an algorithm with this plus this plus this plus this determines that? And you can't. Usually you can't. And so I said to them, you know, I think against my judgment, against my intuition, I would keep it secret. I think it causes so much passion because the irrationality, the, 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 the psychological as opposed to the logical person, part of people comes out mm-hmm. when, when you discuss money. Mm-hmm. I don't like the idea of keeping things particularly secret. I, I said, Announce things that are what are called wide bands. So you say, when you're a senior manager, you get paid between X and Y. When you're a blah, 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 Y and Z, etc. And we make a decision about how that is calculated. And that is individually based. Now, it's against my nature. It's against what, I, what I'd like to say. But having been in this business situation for a number of years, I think it's so difficult to justify this. And it causes so much problems. You know, if I discovered you and I were working together for a number of years and we're good friends, and I've had this experience where you work together with somebody, you know each other, you know the inputs and you know their outputs, and you wake up one day and you find this person is being paid X amount more, or indeed even X amount less than you, you are profoundly shocked. Because in your head, you've got some sort of idea about it being rational and fair. And suddenly, it's manifestly different because numbers are very clear. If I'm paid 80 and you're paid 70, whatever it is, it's very dramatically different. Now, why should you be paid this and why should I be paid that? And the psychological inputs and outputs are made so manifest and this causes the problem. So... I'm a bit of a hypocrite in in a sense that I say, I think transparency is a good thing, but only if you can very carefully justify why people are awarded in a particular way. And for most jobs, you can't. For most jobs, you can't. And so you've got to find some way around this issue. But what it illustrates is the power of of money, the psychological factors about money. If you are paid one cent more than me, that makes me angry. It's not how much, it's how much relatively. 
what this means to you and me. We're not homo economicus. We're not cool, rational individuals. We're passionate. And my God, are we passionate about money? You know, it makes me <laughs> think about my question, should we become fully transparent, makes me, like your answer makes me think about, like if you had a broken leg and the, he the wound wasn't healed yet, the answer is not to take the cast off. And what I'm hearing you say is that we have these psychological wounds to some degree, this unfinished business around money that we most part aren't fully aware of. And if we just make it all transparent, just like these wounds are just going to come out. And so perhaps this is a call for, I feel like financial therapy to some degree, whether you want to call it financial therapy or just becoming more acquainted with your understanding why you think, feel and do what you do with money is, is key step in solving this puzzle. Indeed. Indeed. I totally agree. In your book, you talked about how psychologists, again, we've talked how not all the time, but on average avoided this topic of money. But you, you brought in how artists or literature has not always avoided money. And you gave some examples of poets and novelists who've been talking about money for, for, for decades. With my comment on trying to, I guess, lean into financial therapy or understanding more about why we think, feel, and behave with money, do you think bringing in this artistic approach, this, this writing approach, can help us become more attuned with those feelings that we hold around money? You know, I ask people about the fantasies, about what would they do if they're fantastically rich. I was yesterday, I was in, in Glasgow, an Andy Warhol uh, picture about, you know, the dollar. The artists paint money and they paint wealth and they paint opulence and so forth. I think it's a good idea to ask people, you know, if they had what. I, I, I say to people, you know, how much do you need to earn to be rich? That's question one. What, how do you define rich? And it's dramatically, it's surprisingly different how they, and I say, well, do you think rich people, what do they, what do they spend their money on that makes them happy or different? What would, you, how would you like to spend money? What would money do for you? I mean, you, you want a bigger this and an exotic holiday. And to what extent would it, it bring about any form of long-term happiness? And people come up with very interesting differences. One is, I mean, one of the things women do is they, they want, to have money to give to others, that they want to show their affection and their love in, in presence. Men don't do this so much. And one fantasy is about freedom. My, my favorite stories is about five, more than a number of years ago, a man won the lottery or thought he'd won the lottery. He hadn't won the lottery. And at this point, he went to his office and told his boss what he thought about him. He'd, he'd been harboring this fantasy about telling his boss what a horrible man he was and he was going to quit the job. And that was the fantasy. The fantasy of money would liberate him, would, would give him total freedom. And I say, yes, freedom to do what? What is it that you want to do? Is it you want to travel the world? You want to live in a big house? And people become quite inarticulate. They, the money seems to give a very short-term view of a lifestyle that isn't necessarily satisfying. And, and so I, I'm interested in, in the fantasies of money and the extent to which people think about having large amounts of money lead to happiness. I was 
I was talking to somebody yesterday about two of my colleagues. This is some years ago. Both of them are middle-aged men. Both of them sold their companies. They were very successful, and they sold them for between five and 10 million pounds. This is a number of years ago. That's a lot of money. They would be very comfortable. And both of them, I knew both of them quite well. Um, one became clinically depressed because his business was everything. His work was everything, and he stopped doing it. And the other developed a drink problem because, you know, he liked a glass of wine sometimes in the daytime, but it was nothing to do with every daytime, etc., etc. And you saw two men driven, enthusiastic, wanting to be successful, and given this prize of money. You know, one of the things you know about entrepreneurs is that they, they, their aim is to not make money. Their aim is to be successful, and money is how you measure the success. It's not the it's not the end. It's the it's the means, and so the fantasy about having a huge amount of money and this will make you happy. There, in the book, we went through a very famous case study in England with a woman called I met her. Spend, 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 and she was a working class girl in the nineteen sixties or seventies who earned this huge amount of money and went through it in a very short amount of time. And there are studies on lottery winners. I'm not sure what they're called in Canada or America. People who win along the pools of the lottery. And the extent to which their lives are disrupted, but not made more happy. They are occasionally, and I'm not against it, and I think you can give people a good advice. But the fantasy of, if only I had this amount of money, this amount, that everything would be better, that my relationships would be better, that my stat, that my uh, fan, uh, my lifestyle would be better, so much so. It's not proven. You know, the data don't support this. And it's very difficult to persuade people otherwise. I mean, all the religions, every religion has the same about the love of money is a bad thing. The, the worship of money, the, the, the Muslims, the Christians, the Jews, all say the same thing. I quoted them in my book. It's all about the love of money. It's not a good thing because it doesn't lead to what people believe. And yet it's so difficult to persuade them otherwise. Your conversation here reminds me of, I can't recall who did the study, but it was in the Amer United States. But they looked at, I can't remember the liquid net worth, but I think it was in the round $10 million net worth and they studied these people and they were self-made that in, in that context. But they experienced on average more feelings or states of depression. And, and the response was, is that, you know, I made it, I've got it. But again, again, on average, some of them might not have felt this, but on average, it was this idea that I thought I was going to get this when I got that money, but it's not true. I don't know if you're a fan of Bruce Springsteen, but I am. And one of his songs, he says, is a dream a lie if it don't come true or is it something worse? And I feel like this dream has been like, ah, I'm going to be happy, but then it doesn't come true. And is it something worse? I don't know. I think the most interesting study of all time has never been difficult to replicate. And it's a study done in the 1980s or 90s. And it's on two groups of individuals. One who became quadriplegics in a terrible accident. And they became quadriplegic. And the other people won a lottery. And so you had time A and time B. So you knew before and you knew after. Now, 
you know, the experience of a terrible accident become quadriplegic. You can't imagine how awful and terrible that experience would be. And what they plotted was happiness before and after. And the assumption would be that people who were, had been in this terrible accident would become in three or four years, I can't remember the details, much, much less happy, much more depressed. And those who won the lottery would be the opposite. So you expected what in psychology we call a crossover design, a very clear difference between the two. And what she showed was that the quadriplegics indeed did become less happy, but not much less happy. And the pool winners, the lottery winners or whatever, became not much more happy either. So there wasn't much, as a consequence of these amazing episodes, there wasn't a lot of difference. Now, one argument is the extent to which, therefore, that happiness is inherent, that, you know, some people are born happy. And we know that. The psychologists have for a long time talked about, Galen talked about phlegmatic and sanguine individuals. And that, you know, you know, if you go to a, a school reunion or meet people after a long period of, of time, that they are much the same as they were. Happy people remain happy, unhappy people remain unhappy. And it's the fantasy that money is one of the great changes of your life, that, that this is a great cure. I was, I was talking this afternoon to, to a, a plastic surgeon, a cosmetic surgeon. They say that you know, one of the things that people who do cosmetic surgery, they have a fantasy that if only something were bigger or smaller or tighter or whatever, that this would make them very happy. And that's why plastic surgeons are, are sued such a lot, because it didn't happen, that you weren't much more happy, you weren't much more different as a consequence of this. And the data showed that with money, that the fantasy, the, the belief that the accumulation of large sums of money leads to massive consequences is simply not true. And yet, I mean, we all know this fundamentally, and yet we pursue this goal of, of money. And I think, you know, to go back to, to our original conversation, the early work I did was trying to distinguish between the money associations. Money is security, money is freedom, money is love, and money is power. And I think, for me, money is security. I like to know the money is in the bank. I feel safe about this. I'm not going to spend my money, which I should with happiness. It's not rational. It's not irrational. I think people will have these particular associations which come from, come from childhood. And I don't think it's necessarily bad. It's bad where your associations become extreme. So, you know, you associate money with security and you spend, you never spend money on yourself at all. I met a man some years ago who was in his nineties and saved half of his pension. And you thought, why? Why do you do this? But it's, it's part of you. That there are extremes of these characteristics, extreme savers, extreme spenders, extreme fantasies. I think you know, becoming more self-conscious, talking about having these sort of conversations about what we do with our money, what we think about our money, can't be a bad thing and might lead to people making better money decisions for themselves and their partners. Well, thank you, Adrian. I feel like I can speak to you all day. I see the time here. And I think, yeah, the ending point is that when we 
become more conscious, we can make better decisions. Not the optimal, not the absolute best, just better. Because as, as you alluded to earlier, it's, it, this is a complex thing with money and emotions. I, I have one question that I've asked everyone. So you could keep it as short as you want. So we stay on your t- the time schedule here. And you may have sort of answered it in your last question, but I'm going to keep theme of the podcast and ask a question. Let's imagine you're at end of life, whatever age that is, and you're sitting on a front porch looking out at a view that just brings you ease and contentment. And you decide to, maybe it's 4.30 in the morning when you get up to write a letter to your great-grandchildren's children on what you learned about having a happy and healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? Find out what brings you pleasure. Find out what, of, of all the activities in life, give you most joy. Is it, you know, swimming? Is it walking the dog? What activities have, for you, bring you most satisfaction, where you can explore your talents and your passions and so forth? And then cost them, you know, cost these. And do they, what do they require? In order to have these activities, what do you need? What assets, what amount of money you need and cost it that way. So I think looking back, it's important. It's a, it's a very important question. I, I have, um, this might surprise you, I have recorded a video to be uh, shown at my funeral. Not many people have done this. I, I think, you know, I want to tell people, I've been to funerals I, I've not been very happy with, not been very satisfied with, and I want to appear at my funeral and say, here are a few of the lessons in life, you know, about exploring and exploiting your talents and being kind. You know, I think if someone said, you know, what did you think about him and all the books he's written and so forth, and someone said, well, I thought he was kind. I thought he was a generous individual. I think that would be one of the greatest compliments I could, could give. And kindness doesn't involve a lot of money. You don't have to be rich to be kind. Uh, you can give money. In fact, you can, you can uh, in some ways, uh, money uh, protects you from an emotional involvement. You know, giving huge sums of money to people is not necessarily a way of showing kindness. So I would say be kind, be thoughtful, uh, talk about these issues, explore what you're good at. Don't, for God's sake, do jobs that, where you get a lot of money and you're unhappy. There are lots of jobs like this. Find out what you like doing. Find out what you're good at. And find out the best way you can be paid. Don't, for God's sake, go down the avenue of having a stressful, difficult, unpleasant job just to make the money. I think that would be strongly against my advice. So there you are. That's the best I can do. That was fantastic. Well, you were definitely kind and generous with your time. So thank you so much. I'll include your website where people can browse around your books. And is there anywhere else online? Any other links you would like me to include? Uh, website's fine. Website's fine. Thank you very much for your time. And I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Head over to www.themosthatedfword.com for show notes and more information on Adrian and a link to his books. Yes, his books, that's with an S because he's got 96 of them. If you're still listening, 
Perhaps you enjoyed that episode. And if that's the case, I would love it if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Those reviews definitely help. Until next week, have yourself a good one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I read freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sea.